0: Welcome back to Left Anchor, I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We're continuing our, our coverage of the uh, um, Gaza conflict with uh, an, another important voice. So we're, we're happy to welcome to the show uh, Leila Sheikh, who is a DSA organizer and a writer on Palestinian issues. Um, has a, an article in Jackman that just came out, uh, I believe it was today, Friday, when we're recording this. Um, so, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I, I thought, um, you know, to to kick the discussion off a little bit, maybe we could review sort of the, the, the latest um, news, you know, so Biden has visited Israel. Um, and it appears as, as, as though Israel is, is preparing an invasion possibly, um, and, and, uh, it's fairly unclear about, you know, what precisely is going to happen, but um, what's your read on like the latest sort of, you know, over the last week, basically of what's happening in, in Gaza? Uh,
1: so, I would say that in essence, what we're looking at is uh, what I wrote in Jacobin and what I'm writing elsewhere and dissent and some other places that will come out soon, is that this is the most volatile crisis that we're looking at since 1948, I think. It is already a deadlier event for Israelis than the entirety of the Second Intifada. Um, And this is shaping up to be significantly deadlier than 2014 or nineteen eighty eight. Um and the psychological wounds for Palestinians are far greater than Sabra and Shatila in nineteen eighty two. Um and yes, we are uh, we are looking at a ground invasion, as far as we can tell. Uh I saw that uh ABC just before coming on, I saw the ABC News uh reports that the Israeli military has a green light to move into Gaza. Um and that uh Barak Ravid of Apsios uh reported immediately following Biden's visit to Israel, that uh, Biden didn't really set a parameter against a ground invasion, but rather was only looking for a defined war goal, uh, which the Israelis did not really provide. Uh, To what extent we know that there's a war goal uh, is very limited. Uh, Israeli officials are having a public spat with one another. The defense minister, the finance minister... Um, over what they perceive to be a victory in this scenario. And for Gazans, um, we're looking at the deadliest sustained airstrike campaign ever. Um, we're looking at mass displacements. I think AP and the Gazan Health Ministry have both reported that over 400,000 uh, Gazans have been already internally displaced um so this is a significant refugee crisis and then something that's under under discussed um is that the occupied West Bank is on fire at the moment uh, over 65 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank have been killed since the crisis began on October 7th and settlers are rampaging throughout the region uh to, uh by now it's likely more but i haven't been able to confirm that two villages as far as i know have been depopulated entirely and so, uh, at least as as of recording this, we're on the precipice of a regional war. We're on the precipice of something that could be much bigger than what it already is. And I would say that's where we're looking at right now.
0: Yeah, I'd uh, I'd just like to to add a a comment on something I've noticed personally. Uh, this has been the like biggest sort of international emergency. Uh, where the total degradation of Twitter has really come to the fore. You know, I mean, say what you like about the previous regime before Elon Musk bought it, but like it used to be that you could go to Twitter and with a little bit of work, you could you could find like an un- unprecedented, like um, real time view into what was going on on the ground um, in, in any sort of crisis like this. And, you know. Probably certain aspects of, of this conflict make that, would have made that harder. But now Twitter, I would say, is basically worthless as far as trying to get accurate information. Um, there's just all kinds of dif- disinformation flying around on there. There's no way to tell really anymore. Um, you know, what, who, who is, uh, you know, actually who they say they are, you know, the verification badges are all but worthless. You know, it's like, ah, oh, you're verified to have paid $8. And anyway, you just, you, uh, you know, see, I think was maybe a semi-intentional purpose of Elon Musk buying this in the first place to basically just, uh, flood the zone with shit as, as Steve Bannon has said. And yeah, you, you really feel the absence of Twitter, um, twitter reporting and and perspectives and how confusing it has been and how many different claims of like oh there's a hospital blown up was the hospital blown up by the idf was it blown up by hamas what how many people died and all this and people just like having these super heated arguments back and forth about stuff where you can't even find you know a, a consistent you know picture from from you know what actually happened um and you know it's it's a real shame um uh, before we go on about the, the, you know, more about the current, you know, crisis, uh, you know, you're, you're an expert in like Palestinian history. Um, and, uh, I, I thought it would be worthwhile, you know, uh, or in our previous episode, David Kleon's, you know, said he's, you know, he, he knows the, the basic, like, like gist of things, but he's not so, um, you know, read up on the, the, the details. Um, and you mentioned 1948, obviously that's when Israel was, you know, first established. Uh, but since then, you know, basically, can you, can you tell us a little bit about the history of, of, of Gaza and the occupation post like 1973, you know, in 67, right. You had the six day war, uh, which Israel won easily. Then in 73, you had the Yom Kippur war where Israel was ambushed and it was, it was a sort of close-run thing. And then after that, you've had like this period of, you know, um, basically trying to perpetuate the occupation. Uh, so can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. Um, and I think that's a, this is an important node to connect to our current day because uh, of the psychological impact, which I'll get to in a second. But, as far as the history of Gaza goes, um, and Cleon I think did a wonderful job of giving a cursory introduction to the uh, identity and uh, importance of Gaza for Palestinians more than, I want to think, I believe it's 70%, more than 70% of Gazans are direct descendants of people who were displaced by the Nakba, and um, since the Israeli occupation from the Israeli occupation of around 1973 onward. um, The administration of Gaza, like that of the rest of the occupied territories involved a system of fragmentation of intentional uh, dissolution of Palestinian civil society. Um, And this is really when over time we saw the erosion of the secular nationalist movements, uh, in FETA and in the, uh, various socialists and Marxist-Leninist and otherwise left-wing leaning organizations, uh, like the PFLP or various groups that were more, uh, self-described communistic. Um, and this is when the Muslim Brotherhoods, uh, branch in Gaza, now known as Hamas, essentially, um, became very effective at establishing a social base. Um, something that you'll hear on Twitter, to your point about misinformation and, and shallow uh, understanding, uh, a lot of people rightfully point out that Bibi Netanyahu has a history of promoting Hamas as a means of uh, maintaining the fracture in Palestinian politics. But not many people understand that Hamas has a genuine social base, uh, that goes back to the 1980s, goes back further uh, in its establishment of masters and it's establishments of charities and hospitals and that it provided an alternative after the left wing was assassinated, sabotaged, uh, internally fragmented over various things. And this sets the stage eventually for the Oslo world to have this uh, dramatic split in the 2005, 2006 elections where, uh, Hamas essentially took over the Gaza Strip, um, after Israel had ceded control in agreement with Oslo in, in, in some form of self-government, um, which we now know that the degradation of Oslo is in large part what has led to this engendered crisis of occupation and of apartheid.
0: Can you, hang on, Um, sorry to interrupt. Can you, can you explain what the Oslo Accords were just in case listeners haven't heard of them?
1: Oh, of course. Um, So uh, in the late 1980s, after decades of frustration about this lack of a viable pathway for self-determination, Palestinians who had a decade prior uh, seen a bit of a rejuvenation with regards to their political identity, um, in so far as uh, going back to the going back to 1967 for a real quick second, um, Palestinians in Israel proper had lived for 20 years as citizens, and yet citizens who were subject to martial law, exclusively ethnic imposed martial law, only applied to them. And in 1966, that was lifted. And that gave them a new opportunity to interact with the wider Arab world. They were no longer so systematically uh, surveilled and limited in their movement. But then, of course, in 1967, one year later, um, the occupation of the rest of historic Palestine uh, commenced. And this had a paradoxical effect of bringing the Palestinians in the occupied territories that we know now and the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel closer together, they were now under effectively the same sovereign state's control. Um, And those 10 years of reunification of sorts, albeit under different legal regimes, allowed for a festering of frustration, allowed for a new sense of this problem being... uh, Lost in place, and eventually the first Intifada broke out. And the first Intifada was a mixture of nonviolent, violent, uh, decentralized protest movements. It involved village councils. It involved various political parties vying for uh, a position as the vanguard of the Palestinian national liberation movements. Um, and the first Intifada was largely successful in bringing people towards sympathy for Palestine. And this eventually led to the Oslo Accords in the 1990s between the PLO, which was recognized as by the UN and by the U.S. as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, and the Israeli state. And essentially what the Oslo Accords did is the Palestinian Liberation Organization recognized Israel and in exchange was provided a degree of self-government with the promise of future talks on the establishment of a Palestinian state and if you listen if you go back and look at contemporary criticisms of arafat and of the plo by men like edward Said or men uh, who had served as a advisor to arafat at one point by men like those one of the central criticisms of Brazil was that it didn't actually promise in ironclad terms an independent palestinian state and so five years after the creation of the first oslo accord The horizon was again narrowed, and here we are in 2023 with no independent Palestinian state and a sort of Bantustan system in the West Bank. And we have the siege in Gaza, which has existed since 2006, an an 18-year siege. Uh, And that is more or less the horizon that we have right now.
0: That's the end of the preview, folks. As usual, we like to mention that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, uh, you could subscribe at $5 a month. If you want that, plus a free subscription to the website, uh, plus the opportunity for a steeply discounted print subscription, you can do that if you so wish at $10 a month. And uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.